The Triochi male voice choir are going to start us off. Uh, it's not the tune I was expecting here, but the Welsh one nonetheless. It's called Hifferdal. The song is Charles Wesley's Love Divine or Love's Excelling. Valleys of Wales, the Triochi male voice choir there with Love Divine, All Loves Excelling. Coming up on Heart and Soul this morning, Giles Brandreth and Susie Dent will be discussing well-known phrases from the Bible. Michael Barclay talks to William Seigart. He's very much an advocate for poetry and its good effects. Towards the end of the programme, we'll hear a sonnet from Malcolm Guide. I'm taking inspiration from the poet George Herbert. And speaking of George Herbert, here is one of his hymns. It's sung here by the 
choir of Lincoln Cathedral School and it's King of Glory, King of Peace. Like the line, seven whole days, not one in seven, I will praise thee. That was King of Glory, King of Peace, sung by the choir of Lincoln Cathedral School. Now over to David to introduce our next item. Giles Brandreth teams up with Susie Dent for a podcast called Something Rhymes with Purple, where they explore the origin of words. This week, they consider words and phrases which are found in the Bible. Hello and welcome to another episode of Something Rhymes with Purple. This is a podcast all about the passion for words. It may be words that we love, it may be words that we hate, or it may be the secret lives lying behind some of the words that we use every day. And I'm sitting, this time not in my kitchen, but in a London studio, and I'm sitting opposite my great friend and co-host, Giles. Hello, Giles. Well, it's lovely to be with you again, Susie. That's very sweet of you to say that, because some people think I'm the millstone around your neck. Willie? People have said that to me. Gosh, you're a poor woman. What she has to put up with. I happen to know that the phrase, the millstone around your neck, meaning something oppressive, a burden, comes from the New Testament, Mm -hmm. rather from the Gospel according to St. Luke. And the reason I know that is because I have spent, I now realise, a lot of my life in church. Mm -hmm. Don't think of myself as a spiritual person at all. Do you, are you a spiritual person, do you think? I, I think I am spiritual, but without any specific 
seat for my spiritualism or kind of target, if you like. When you were a little girl, did you go to church? Did your parents yes. take you to church? I wouldn't say that we went every Sunday, but I did go a fair amount. And then, of course, I went to a convent where church was uh, compulsory and I loved it. And even now, going into a church is such it just inspires such serenity in me was there's something about the quiet anglican catholic uh, well i went to a catholic convent i don't subscribe i have to say to any particular denominational faith these days but there is definitely something about the buildings where people congregate and pray that, that has something very very special and i love going to church too i i still go to church curiously i say curiously because I, I wouldn't say that i'm a profound believer it's partly habit and it's partly language and that's why I wanted to talk a little bit about it today. I began going to church when I was a very little boy. I've worked out why. It's because my parents didn't like me. And they could get rid of me on a whole Sunday. And so in London on Sundays, when I was a child in the 1950s, I would go to about three different churches. One of them I was a server. Uh, one of them I was in the choir. Well, two of them I was in the choir. Loved being in the choir because we got paid um, we got paid uh, a shilling for every main service, and then we got half a crown for weddings, five shillings for funerals. We, we choir boys, we sat there looking for the oldest person in the congregation, and we prayed for them to die, because that would mean five shillings. That's the equivalent of doctors' ash cash, when they sign off somebody to be cremated, and they get the ash cash in return. Is that what it's known as? You get a little extra, you know, whatever yeah. you, your fee is known it's as the ash similar. cash. I don't know if there was a term for your earnings. So as a child, I went to church a great deal. I still go to church, and I go to the 8 o'clock service on a Sunday morning, which in many Anglican churches still uses the King James version of the Bible, written at the beginning of the 17th century yeah. by a committee. Some people think the language is so extraordinary, the committee might have included Shakespeare. Nobody, I think, knows exactly who's on this committee. But turns of phrase from the King James Bible still resonate so a millstone round your neck is one of them. Fight the good fight is from the um, gospel, I think, according to St. Paul. Um, it is extraordinary, isn't it, that it, it held its own at this time, because it was, it was during the Renaissance, held its own amongst, amongst celebrated literary works by people like Shakespeare. And it's still now one of the most printed books in history and probably the most famous Bible translation ever. So it's amazing it still has its power. And as you say, I think it's all to do with its language and its majesty because it's just got the most beautiful cadences. And I think the oddness of some of the phraseology that came about was because the translators decided to translate literally rather than try and come up with their own equivalent English idiom. So that I think that's, you know, things like by the skin of one's teeth, etc., which is another one. You know, people think, well, what is the skin on your teeth? Yeah, what, I think is, it, what does I think it mean by the, the skin of your teeth? I think the idea, again, direct translation, but I think the idea was simply of the thinnest, thinnest veneer that's on your teeth, so by the tiniest amount. Um, but they strike us as being really odd today. But I think because of the kind of richness of these idioms, even if they weren't very transparent, uh, it's, it kind of lingers in, in the memory and in the mind. By the skin of your teeth comes from the book of Job. Mm. And we'll come back to that discussion, Judy Dent and Giles Brandreth, and it'll be after Amy Grant sings this one, which is Thy Word. Is the 
Quotations from Psalm 119 there, as uh, Amy Grant sang, Thy Word. But let's uh, get back to more phrases from the Bible, back to Giles Brandreth and Judy Dench. Going the extra mile. That dates back to the time of, of Christ, because if asked by a Roman soldier to carry equipment, you literally had to do so. You had to go the extra mile. But it's phrases like rise and shine. We say rise and shine comes from the book of Isaiah. Rise and shine. That's amazing. Yeah, you think of it as sort of modern Kellogg's world, some kind of cereal maker's and slogan. You, and the, uh, when it was first originated, rise and shine mean, meant stand up and allow the light of God through you. Mm. Literally shine yeah. with glory. Blind, leading the blind. That comes from the Gospel according to St. Matthew. At the 11th hour, doing something at the very last minute. Um, that comes from St. Matthew as well. Being at your wit's end from Psalm 107. How have these things lasted when other turns of phrase has? Is it the majesty of the language? Is it the words? Well, I think it's partly timing as well because printing had been invented but it was still in its sort of fairly early 
stages and and it made copies relatively cheap for a start but also suddenly the bible was accessible to all those people who could read english and who could afford a printed bible the impact of printing on english generally is just is just enormous for example i mean do you remember me talking about the h in ghost and how that came from one of william caxton's typesetters who he brought over from Flanders because he couldn't find enough typesetters in this country. One of them, a Flemish speaker, looked at G-O-S-T in Old English, ghost, and thought, that doesn't look right. So he lobbed an H into our word and it stayed there ever since. And it was things like that that just became crystallised both in terms of spelling, but also in terms of people's imagination. You know, what went there was reprinted, was disseminated far and wide, and it helped to standardise not just spelling, but also phrases as well. I mean, in Shakespeare's time, famously, he spelt his own name twice differently in the same document, which was his will. Spelling was absolutely all over the place. People from the north couldn't necessarily understand people from the south. And what printing did, and this had a huge impact on the Bible as well, is, as I say, it kind of crystallised things. It's partly why spelling and sound divorced as well, because the spelling began to not reflect the sound and it's not changed very much since. But I think that's why, I think it's why it had such a huge impact because it was one of the first times that people could A, afford a Bible, B, what they were all reading the same translation. You probably don't know this. I don't. I'm going to put you to the test. Scapegoat. I know it's, yes. it's a word that occurs in the book of Leviticus. Mm. We know I what it know is. This one, I think. Oh, you do? Do you know what the original well, it's is? it's a scapegoat, isn't it? It's, it was ah. originally escape as in escape. I think what happened is there were two goats who were chosen at a time when sins were to be atoned for, so kind of expiation of sins. And one of them was sent for sacrificial slaughter, while the other had all the sins of the nation, all the sins of the people figuratively laid upon it and was sent off into the wilderness. And that goat, I mean, whether or not it survived, was seen as the escape goat. It was the one that kind of got away, but it carried the sins of the people with it. My gut feeling is it's the power of the language that has made these phrases last. Yeah. Man does not live by bread alone. Fears in Deuteronomy and in St. Matthew. A man after my own heart. Be a man. How are the mighty fallen? These are phrases that resonate. And it's so vivid as well, the imagery. Some people have said that the, the King James Version sounded to many like the voice of God himself because it was so glorious and so majestic. People still talk about going to the land of Nod. They do. Nod is mentioned in Genesis. It's where Cain was exiled, and Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. That was a famous film as well, wasn't it? And I think it was uh, Jonathan Swift who first used it for the state of sleep, and it was he was riffing off the idea of nodding your head. Very good. Yeah. So the land of Nod, which first appears in the Bible, mm. east of Eden, Jonathan Swift thinks makes the two, puts the two together. Puts the two you're, together. You're drifting off to the land of Nod. A leopard cannot change its spots, first featured in the book of Jeremiah. Oh, really? Going like a lamb to the slaughter from the book of Isaiah. Moving mountains. Can you imagine the idea of moving mountains? Faith can move mountains. Point is, let's salute the Bible. And I have to say, yes. the King James Version of the Bible is the one that has stood for me the test of time. And people say, oh, you need a more modern version so that people can actually understand what they're reading and what they're being having read to them. Mm. And I say, okay, fair enough. But I like to have the King James Version still available because it speaks in a different way. Sometimes I get, you go to a Shakespeare play, certainly the first 20 minutes, I never understand anything. Mm. But gradually, somehow, it, you do understand as the play wears on. 
And in an odd sort of way, if you go to a service where you hear the language of the King James Version of the Bible, and indeed, from a few years later, the English Book of Common Prayer, mm -hmm. the majesty, the poetry of that language lifts you into a plane. You may not need to believe all the details, or indeed believe in a specific God, but there is something rather special and spiritual about the words. No, I totally agree. And there you heard Giles Brandreth and Judy Dench. As a youngster, I was intrigued by the Bible quotation, Be Content, Take Two. Google it if you don't believe it's there. It's Sam Maiman who actually says it. Uh, meantime, here's Catherine Scott and her song, I Belong.
up on uh, words by St Paul in the epistle to the Romans. Joe Stafford and Gordon McRae with Beyond the Sunset. Joe Stafford and God McRae with Beyond the Sunset. But now David will introduce uh, William Seigart and Michael Barclay. 
William Seacott is a publisher who promotes poetry through a poetry prize. He also helps people through his poetry pharmacy. Michael Barclay asks him how it all started. I want to talk a little bit about the poetry pharmacy now, William. And uh, what kind of problems do people bring to you? They bring every kind of problem. I think what's been fascinating for me and humbling is that whether I've been in a mental health unit in Liverpool or a, a leafy suburb of Kensington in London or whatever, uh, everybody has, broadly speaking, the same issues. And I'm sure a doctor would say that during the week that they're dealing with, broadly speaking, mostly the same things. Um, loneliness, lack of courage, fear of the future, anxiety, sleeplessness, all the kinds of normal things that we can all um, lay claim to. You're not a, a, a trained psychotherapist or a counsellor, but in a way you're fulfilling an element of that role. Yes. Uh, I think the intriguing thing for me about the pharmacy is it all happened really by mistake. A friend of mine, a wonderful friend called Jenny Dyson, came up with the idea, asked me to a literary festival and set me up in a tent with a couch and an armchair and a prescription pad and told me to bring photocopies of all the poems I thought might help people. And I originally thought I would do this for an hour or two, lest it would become a really significant part of my life. And I think, in retrospect, given I've listened to over a thousand people's problems, I probably should have chosen a supervisor to help me. <laughs> have you uh, listened to joy as well as sadness? Up to a point. On the whole, people don't go to the doctor unless they feel sick, and that's not to set me up as a doctor, but on the whole, people come and tell me their worries, mm. um, not their joys. Sales of poetry books um, have actually gone up by 40% in the last five years. Uh, what do you attribute that to? It's extraordinary, and I attribute it mostly to social media. Um, because poetry has always been the poorest cousin of the arts, uh, there have been very few people who publish new poets and maybe even half a dozen presses or so in the UK. And on the whole, the poetry editors of those half a dozen were white, middle-aged, middle-class men. And they like a certain kind of voice, tone and so forth, and have a relatively perhaps monochromatic approach and then social media came along and suddenly people could start to put out their own poetry or poetry that they liked and um, a whole host of young poets in their 20s started to build followings of hundreds of thousands of people and that has transformed poetry uh, the publishers started to chase them and now we have very different voices much more diverse much more interesting and uh, poetry is booming and I'm delighted to, to say that and I think something like for example forwarding and a funeral where uh, the Auden poem uh, was has now become, you know, almost everybody's funeral piece, Stop the Clocks. And, uh, it never does any harm, does it? No, but that proves the point, in a way, about context and uh, what I discovered with the pharmacy, having spent uh, most of my adult lifetime trying to get poetry out of Poetry Corner and maybe making it a, a teeny bit bigger, but it's still, to most people, a fusty, dusty, back-of-a-bookshop, slim-volume elite thing that's not for them. Uh, four Weddings and a Funeral, and to some extent the pharmacy, with this idea of giving people a line into a poem around their own feelings, gives people context, complicity, and takes away their fear of poetry, which is great. And I think it's important to get the positive side of social media, because in my pharmacy I'm realising, listening to people's problems, how dangerous and damaging social media is to their psyches. Is there any way in which, in 
our modern world. Uh, poetry is beginning to stand in for liturgies which used to give people so much to hold on to in more religious times. In our increasingly secular world, I believe that the canon of poetry has become the secular liturgy. And um, there's poetry in all liturgies of every faith. But it seems to me that, going back to social media, we have the ability now to share passages of text which has spiritual uh, inspiration or complicity with each other. Uh, it's a new kind of sharing prayer, really. I think at this point we really ought to hear you read one of your favourite poems. Tell me what you've chosen and why you chose it. I've chosen not a healing poem, I have to say. This is a, a worrying poem. But it's a poem which has stuck in my mind ever since I first read it. It's a poem by Philip Larkin, who to me was in some ways the most important poet of the last half of the 20th century, certainly in this country, for his extraordinary ability to take hold of thoughts that most of us would push aside as quickly as we could, analyse, evolve and develop, and express in a manner so universal, understandable by all, without any of the um, arrogance of elegant variations so many uh, artists put in the way. Well, let's hear um, Obard, which indeed you've uh, prescribed for me and our private passions listeners. I work all day and get half drunk at night. Waking at four to soundless dark, I stare. In time the curtain edges will grow light. Till then, I see what's really always there. Unresting death, a whole day nearer now, making all thought impossible. But how and where and when I shall myself die? arid interrogation, yet the dread of dying and being dead flashes afresh to hold and horrify. The mind blanks at the glare, not in remorse, the good not done, the love not given, time torn off unused, nor wretchedly because an only life can take so long to climb clear of its wrong beginnings and may never, but at the total emptiness forever, the sure extinction that we travel to, and shall be lost in, always. Not to be here, not to be anywhere, and soon. Nothing more terrible, nothing more true. This is a special way of being afraid, no trick dispels. Religion used to try, that vast, moth-eaten musical brocade created to pretend we never die, and specious stuff that says no rational being can fear a thing it will not feel, not seeing that this is what we fear. No sight, no sound, no touch or taste or smell, nothing to think with, Nothing to love or link with. The anaesthetic from which none come round. And so it stays, just on the edge of vision. A small, unfocused blur. A standing chill that slows each impulse down to indecision. Most things may never happen. This one will.
and realisation of it rages out in furnace fear when we're caught with our people. Or drink. Courage is no good. It means not scaring others. Being brave lets no one off the grave. Death is no different wind at than withstood. Slowly light strengthens and the room takes shape. It stands plain as a wardrobe what we know, have always known, know that we can't escape, yet can't accept. One side will have to go. Meanwhile, telephones crouch getting ready to ring in locked-up offices, and all the uncaring, intricate, rented world begins to rouse. The sky is white as clay, with no sun. Work has to be done. Postmen, like doctors, go from house to house. This is an extraordinary poem, isn't it? I loved that line about uh, um, the anaesthetic from which one never emerges, and it reminded me of T.S. Eliot, your other favourite, a patient etherised upon a table. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Um, well, thank you very much uh, for that. Obard by Philip Larkin. Beautifully read, a beautiful poem. But I suppose an experience that many would rather not dwell on, but it somehow makes one feel better to actually listen to someone talking about death in such a beautiful way. Well, um, my mother was very keen on this poem. Again, uh, we shared a lot of poetic tastes, and at her uh, memorial service, she had left instructions for me to recite or read it in the Mm. church. And um, the the, the canon was emailing me with some consternation beforehand, and uh, you know, are you sure your mother really would have chosen this? And um, when I read it afterwards, and, uh, and he gave his talk, he said, actually, it's perfectly healthy for a Christian to be doubting at four in the morning all of the Christian values. That's part of normal life, and I thought that was a very good way of looking at it. I'm Michael Barclay. We're speaking to William Seigart, and the poem was by Philip Lycan. But just a reminder, though, that you're tuned to Heartland FM on 97.5 or the Digital Access Channel or heartland.scot. Bridge FM, if you're in one of the hospitals in the Dundee area. But by whatever means and wherever you are, welcome to Heartland FM and welcome to this programme. It's Heart and Soul with David Wilkie and me, Howard Simpson. Just a quick reminder, two of our sister programme sounds inspirational. Uh, Drew Scott and family, Tuesday at 7 in the evening, repeated Thursday evening at 10. Perhaps your faith has been a bit shaken by recent events to do with the pandemic. If so, this one may be for you. It's Sila and He Will Hold Me Fast. Through love. 
He will hold me fast, sung by Sila. That's an old song as far as the words are concerned, because I can remember it when I was quite young. But uh, a new tune and uh, quite a good song, I think. He will hold me fast. But um, let's hear again from David. Malcolm Geint has written a series of poems based on some of George Herbert's poetic themes. This week we hear Malcolm reading about the spear piercing Jesus' side. And this is followed by Cacciaturin's music for his ballet Spartacus, played by the Vienna Philharmonic Orchestra. Christ's side-piercing spear. For all the while I hurl my hurts at heaven, believing I besiege the battlement of God's invulnerable heart and haven, I strike at emptiness, at my own bafflement. I shake my fist in fury at a shadow, for he is not like us, nor are his ways like ours. He left that heaven's haven long ago and broke our siege. A voice behind me says, Why do you weep and rage at heaven above? I have come down to die here in the dirt. Your wounds have wounded me, for I am love, and in my heart I hold your deepest hurt. O oh, turn around, return and face me here. Your slightest prayer will pierce me like a spear. And that's it for Heart and Soul this morning. Now, if you missed some of it, you'll be able to hear it again on the on-demand section in the revamped website, heartland.scot, of course. Anyway, thank you for listening. Our thanks, too, to Malcolm Guide, William Sygat, Michael Barclay, Giles Brandreth and Judy Dench for their contributions this morning. 
Not to mention Sam Ross, who puts all the pieces uh, that we have working from home, he puts them all together for us. Eddie Rose is on after news at 9, Colin Phillips at 11, Dave Barry with the service at 1, Anne-Marie's at 2 with Mike Marwick at 5, Ian Moyes at 7 and Chris Stanton at 9. That's all here on Heartland FM. But for now, David Wilkin and I, I'm Herb Simpson. We'll, as usual, wish you a good day, a good week and God's blessing. We're going to leave you with a song which... I remember singing in the youth fellowship, so that's how old it is, or older. Anyway, it's Gaither's Homecoming Friends and a new name written down in glory. And 